Uh, now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe, believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except for one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. May I pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to be able to sing to you. You are worthy of that. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to open up your word. Uh, you are gracious in that. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would, uh, would guide me, Lord, that you'll speak through me, Lord, uh, that you would use uh, your word to affect our hearts, uh, do what you do for your honor, Lord. We love you, Jesus. We pray that uh, we would learn and be clear about what it means to enter your kingdom uh, and that we would all, everyone in the sound of my voice, uh, would be those who have entered, would be born again. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, family, well, it's so good to have the crew, and um, if you need Bibles, they are in your pew. Uh, we're going to be walking through the text, so it'll be helpful, or you can, in this day and age, you can tell you, tell you guys also to pull out your phones and, and grab your Bible that way too, I guess. Um, we are concluding this uh, summer series of, of discussing uh, of wisdom and Bible passages that exalt Christ. Uh, and we're and we're ending hopefully in a very uh, appropriate fashion, as we have talked about man a ton of different uh, topics, uh, uh, social engagement, uh, abortion. Uh, we've, we've 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 run a gamut big time. But what we wanted to make sure, what I wanted to make sure, is that uh, we wouldn't go through all these different topics 
and not hit something that is actually, as we're talking about serving the kingdom and, 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 and loving people in the kingdom and, and, be, and, and resources in the kingdom, and would hate when we be talking about all that stuff and yet a person not be in the kingdom. And so it seems very appropriate for us to uh, look at John chapter 3, about this reality, and realize that spiritual regeneration is the only means we enter into God's kingdom in a process that, uh, the reason why I want to say this is because I feel like in our, in our, our day and age that people are, are thoroughly confused, uh, even, even churchgoers a lot of times, uh, what does it mean uh, to be born again? What does it mean to, to talk about uh, salvation? And that many of us, although we would say different, we live our lives as, as actually we can bring salvation to ourselves. And so whether that's happening here in this local community or the people that you are talking with, that is a propensity. And so I want to, by God's grace, hopefully through this beautiful text, uh, the Lord can make clear to us what does it mean when we talk about regeneration and being born into God's kingdom. And I want to start with this first point here. The first point that comes out of this text here in John uh, is the fact that man cannot enter into the kingdom through any achievement of his or her own. Let me say that again. That man cannot enter into the kingdom of God through any achievement of his or her own. That there is nothing you can do to bring salvation to yourself. Right? And, and I hope this is encouraging. If you already know this, praise God. I hope you will be deeply convicted to not live in light of that when you already know. Um, hopefully you can proclaim this to some individuals as well. Uh, the, the book of John is a book in the Bible uh, that is recording uh, the life of Jesus Christ. A lot of things are not uh, recorded, but he's recorded enough in focus. Uh, each gospel writer is focused on a specific component. Uh, J- John is really focused on this concept of belief, of, 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 of realizing who Jesus is. And, and, and as, as it were, he's hoping that the Holy Spirit would use his gospel uh, to specifically produce that sense of belief, of faith uh, in Jesus. So you'll see a lot when you're reading through the gospel of John, particularly him pointing to this sense of belief and faith, faith and belief. Okay, and in particular, that's why this story is, uh, is specific to John, because he's trying to really make it clear to individuals what does it mean when we're talking belief, because we have a person historically who had an issue. This guy, Nicodemus, right? He had a, uh, an issue with understanding what does it mean to, to enter into faith. And look what happens. We have an interesting man here. Look what it says in verse 1. I'm just going to go ahead and start. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. When you read that, a lot of us, including myself, you know, in the past, you would, you would see that and go, oh, man, that's cool. And let's just keep going. You know, that's and get to the good stuff. But, you know, as, as you are training to be theologians, uh, handlers, just healthy handlers of the word, whenever you see a person not just mentioned in the Bible, but they are also described, many times the author is doing that because that's going to be very important for you understanding the context of the rest of the passage. Okay, and so he so there's three distinct facts that he wants you to understand when starting to know what's what, as he's setting this case up for what does it mean to enter into the kingdom of God. The first thing he wants you to see um, is that this man uh, of the of the Jews or what you would call him ruler of the Jews, uh, that he was uh, first and foremost uh, a political guy or I would say a religious guy. 
And he says that because it says he was a, a Pharisee. Now, if you know this, and I'll, you know what it started, did it start at ruler of the Jews? Where did it start? Pharisees? I started Pharisees. Is that where it starts? He just started ruler of the Jews. He starts with a ruler of the Jews. Now, being ruler of the Jews meant that you were part of the Sanhedrin, okay? Now, that was, that's being a Pharisee, but it's actually even higher than being a Pharisee, okay? Because there was only a probably around 70 Pharisees that equal up the, uh, the framework of becoming a Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the ruling council of the Jews under Rome, okay? Now, they wielded great, great political power, Okay, in fact, they could do many things, but the one thing they couldn't do was actually uh, put someone to the death penalty. And that's why, actually, when you read through the Bible, you read through the Gospels, you'll see that they, when, they, when they were frustrated with Jesus, they had to figure out a way to, uh, to, to have uh, Pontius Pilate and those guys not like Jesus and want to kill Jesus because they could not offer death to an individual. And that's why, actually, Jesus actually died on a Roman cross and not a Jewish cross because they couldn't kill people. Uh, that's this that's this history lesson, but but the point is that they were ruler. He's a ruler of the Jews, which means he had basically extended the heights of 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 of, of, of political prominence. Right? He was probably it's like being on a city council in Detroit. Okay, so he had reached kind of political prominence. This guy, but not only that, you can go on. He's a Pharisee. Now, it's interesting, he's a Pharisee, which means that this guy, uh, not only was he politically astute, but he was a very, very religious guy. In fact, right, to be a Pharisee in the whole history of Israel, think about this, the whole history of Israel, we've done Genesis, we've done Exodus, the whole history of Israel just has a few thousand Pharisees, maybe a thousand, okay? And so you're, you're, ta- you're talking about uh, not many individuals get to experience this reality. So you have the intertestamental period all the way up to the beginning of the first century, and you just have a thousand or so Pharisees. And so he had reached kind of the uh, religious height of, of the, the, the ecclesiastical ladder, right? I mean, this guy, in fact, you know, I've, I've mentioned this a few times. To be a Pharisee, you had to memorize uh, the first five books of the Bible, right? So you, you can try that for a Bible study sometime. <laughs> to memorize the Pentateuch. I mean, you guys almost killed me for keeping you in Exodus too long. So, you know, you're not doing that. But all that to say, he had reached religious prominence. This guy was a Pharisee, and they would go through the nth degree to try to keep holiness within the camp, right? Almost to the point where now we understand, we, we say Pharisee, it has a bad connotation. Why? Because they, they would do things like, man, if you're, if you're a chicken laid an egg on the Sabbath, killed a chicken, right? Because you don't do work on the Sabbath. They're that serious about, we are serious about holiness and protecting what God has told us to be about, right? And so now today we see, we see Jesus. That's why now you, when you think of Jesus in the Bible, he's continually confronting the Pharisees because they have forgot, they, they, they missed the whole point of what God was trying to do when he was providing these rules and stipulations in order for people to experience holiness, but my point of even bringing any of that up is that these guys were religious people. They tried to keep the law to the nth degree, and they were serious about holiness. And when you saw this individual, and you were in the first century, you thought, man, look at that religious guy. I want to be just like that guy. You guys ever had that? Is there, is there, some, is there some pastoral or speaker idol worship that we have in our local body where there's a guy, you, or, you know, a person you really like, 
And you're like, man, I want to be spiritual like that person. I want to pray like that person. I want to be like that person. Well, the reality is right now we look at the Pharisees and go, man, you guys missed it. But back then people wanted to be like them because they were the religious height. They had reached the ecclesiological ladder. So you have a guy who is the ruler of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, right? He's in the Sanhedrin. He's calling the shots. He's super religious. He's a Pharisee. But it's interesting that, that the author wants you to see his name. His name is Nicodemus. Now, that is crazy because why in the world would you give Nicodemus, what, this guy who is a Jew, we know he's a Jew because he's a Pharisee, because you only can be a Pharisee if you're, in a Jew, if you're a Jew, but you give this Pharisee, this staunch Jewish guy, a Greek name. Nicodemus is a Greek name. So let me tell you why that's probably happening, what, what scholarship would agree. This is very important. So when you, in that day, as we all know, a little history lesson, uh, during, the, during the beginning of the first century, you now have entered into a Hellenized world, as it were, right? Because what you happened before then, you had Alexander the Great, who had conquered the known world, and, right? And then Hellenized everybody. And so to be anybody, to be a serious socialite, you needed to be Greek, right? So that's what you have, the, the rise of the Renaissance. You have Aristotle, Plato, all these guys, Socrates. They all come on the scene. And now to really be a socialite, to be a guy who understands the arts, to be in culture, it's like being a hip today, kind of, you know what I'm saying? Like, to really know what's up, you know, you want to be a Greek guy. And so what would happen is that prominent Jewish people, in order to show that they were also socialites, what they would do is they would name their children Greek names. That make sense? So that when you saw them, you knew, you knew oh, that person is a, an astute person. That person probably gives to the symphony, right? That person probably goes and Right, right? You, you, you meet people like that, you're like, man, you, you, bro, you're just trying to make men's meet, and you see people giving millions of dollars to the zoo and stuff. Like, that, that was Nicodemus' family, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. So, so, so the author wants you to see something here. The author wants you to see that you have this guy, Nicodemus, who's this, who's this Jewish dude who has a Greek name. Guess what? He was just a religious guy. He was a socialite, a socially astute guy, right? He was a political great figure. Now think about that. If there's anybody you wanted to live next door to, wouldn't it be Nicodemus? I mean, he's a religious guy, his political favor, he's socially engaged. Everybody likes Nicodemus. In fact, if there's anyone that you would think would have interest into the kingdom, it got to be Nikki, Right? Social. He's social elite. See what the author's trying to do here? He didn't pick anybody. He wanted to pick the guy that you go, well, what about this guy? Let me show you about that guy. The socialite, the religious, the guy who you can't get more religious than, the guy who was already hanging with the mayor. That guy, the scriptures read, says in the Bible, this man, this ruler of the Jews, this Pharisee, this man came to Jesus, it says, by night and said to him, let me pause. He comes to Jesus by night. That's interesting to me. Isn't it interesting to you? Now, do you know why it's interesting? Because I get it. He's, he's busy. He's, he's doing all that stuff, right? So he's kind of busy, you know, so he maybe just couldn't get to Jesus during the day. So he had to come to Jesus by night. But I, I doubt that because of the rest of the statement. You see the rest of the statement? The rest of the statement says, he came by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher to come from God, for no one can do these signs 
that you do unless God is with them, guess what? When there's usually a miracle worker who's come from God, you can find some time in your day to see him, can't you? Right? I can find some time. I'll get sick. I'm sick day because I need to go to the miracle guy. So we know that probably that wasn't the issue. And the author wanted you to see something very important that he came to Jesus by night. Right? He goes by night to see Jesus. Look what the scriptures say here. It says, I love this. This man came to Jesus by night. You go, why? Well, why did he come by night? I want to propose to you. I want to propose to you that, that despite the fact he was a Pharisee, despite the fact he was a socialite, Despite the fact that he, he had risen to uh, the height of the ecclesiastical ladder, there was still something that the author wanted you to see that was missing out of Nicodemus' life. That he had it all. You hear me? He had it all. But there was something that was out of his life that his political prominence, his religiosity, and his social astuteness could not address. And so... Here's this awesome dude who kind of sneaks in to want to find Jesus. And guess what? I'm bringing that up, and I'm I'm pretty confident that the author's bringing this up because he knows that you and I can be easily like this, modern-day Pharisees, where we walk around, and we're sitting there, and we're trying to gain our social status. You know, we're trying to go and, 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 and get this job and make this money and, 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 and trying to validate ourselves. We're, we're, we're walking around, we've got our Bibles with us, and we're doing all the verses, but man, has God deposited his spirit in our life? And God wants to make sure that you don't mix up the two, that you're not just religious, you're not just engaged socially, you're not just doing stuff at MacAv and, and going to sports and, and coaching our kids and, and serving in our community and having movie nights and you're doing all this stuff in our community and yet there's not life in your heart for Jesus. He's a guy. He's a Pharisee. He's on a board. But yet he comes to Jesus by night, the scriptures say. Look what it says. I love this. It says, this ruler of the Jew comes to Jesus by night and he says to him, Rabbi, we know. Now, that's interesting. We know it's just him. What are you talking about we? He's speaking French. Why is he saying we? I mean, it's just, it's just him and Jesus, right? We know that you're teaching. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, guess what, Jesus? Think about that. He's, he's exposed himself a little bit, right? He's like, we've, we've been talking about you. You know what? That's what you, we, you know, we've been, man, we in the Sanhedrin and the, the Pharisees, all of us, we've been discussing you, Jesus. Oh, and I just want to come all the way down here in the middle of the night just to let you know we love you, Jesus. We love that you're a teacher that come from God and all the things you're doing. No, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. Look what, look what Jesus did. Don't, don't, now, I, t- I say this all the time. I love that our Lord is so awesome and how throughout the Bible he is so street. Look what he does here. Look what he says here. The scriptures say, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher, come from God, for no one is doing these signs that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered him and said, truly, truly, which by the way is like slang for for real, right? It's like when you really want to be serious <laughs> in the first century, you said, truly, truly, like I ain't playing, right? And notice this. Nicodemus says that, you're a teacher that comes from God. Jesus, it says, Jesus answered him. But can I ask a question? What did he answer? 
There was no question. Nicodemus didn't go, hey, Jesus, here's the question. And And it says, Jesus answered him. Nicodemus made a statement about him coming from God. And it says, Jesus answered him and said, may I propose to you? There was a question. It just hadn't been asked yet. There was a question. See, I, I propose to you what Jesus does there, and we see this throughout the scripture, is that someone has kind of that internal question, and they're cloaking it and all this other stuff, and Jesus just gets down to business. See, right? So Jesus looks at them and says, hey, look, you don't really like me. You didn't come down here to tell me that you, you like the miracles I'm doing, as you just said, that you, you've, you've talked about me, and, and you, you really think a lot about me. That's not what's true. That's not what's true. Actually, you guys have been criticizing me. You've been dogging me. But there's something in you that you've come down, you realize that there's something that your religious prominence cannot address. You realize that there's something in your heart right now that your socialite status cannot address. You realize there's something right now that your religious, your pharisaical reality cannot address. And so let me say unto you, truly, truly, you see that? Let me say unto you, truly, truly, the scriptures say, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. The word born again, this has three nuances. He's just said, I'm cutting through the chase, Nicodemus. I want to talk specifically what you're really here for. You come down, you snuck down here at night because there's a hole in your heart that a Mack truck can drive through it. And I want you to know that that can be filled, but you must be born again. And he gives this concept of born again here, guys. Let me, let me tell you, there's three nuances uh, to understand the word born again. First and foremost is this concept to be reborn. Okay, it's to, uh, to, to rehappen. Um, we see this in Acts uh, 4.12, if you're talking about there's no salvation in anyone else, I just threw up a few verses, there's one more that's coming up, to make it very clear that Jesus is, 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 is drawing a line in the sand to, to Nicodemus. He's saying, see, I want you to understand, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He says, and there is no salvation, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among, among men by which we must be saved. This is what the scriptures say about the, the, the exclusivity of Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Right? And so right now, Jesus is saying this, cut through the chase here. I want you to understand you must be born again. Let's talk about what born again looks like. There's three kind of nuances. The first is to be reborn. Now, uh, Sis even was sharing up here when we, when she, when we were singing, and uh, she talked about this reborn. It means to, to rehappen. The question you have to ask yourself is, why do you need to be reborn? So that's not, see guys, that's not some churchy term. Actually, churchy terms usually are really deep, deeply packed theologically. I want to highly encourage you not to just throw out church terms because God put them there for a reason. This whole born again thing, the reason why you must be born again is because something happened cataclysmically wrong in the first birth. You understand that? See, the whole point is, when you and I were born, we were born and we got, you know, when you're born, you get your mama's nose, you know, you get, you get your daddy's eyes, you know what I'm saying? You get, you get your, daddy, your daddy's laugh or something like that. But you know what also transfer when humans are born? A sin nature. And so we are sinful by nature. And because of that, we are without life, without the life of God. And so what God is talking about here when he says to reborn is that you have to be reborn because something happened horribly in the first birth, and that is you and I are evil. Think about it. I always tell people, you, you don't have, 
it's amazing how kids, you don't have to teach them how to lie and be evil. They just do it all by themselves. They, you know, teach, you know, you go, you know, go to a, I said, go to a, go to a library and, and try to find a book on how to hate more successfully. Go try to find one. You won't find one. You know why? We know how to do that. You don't need no books. But guess how many books you'll find on how to love, how to be kind, how to care for people, how to be generous. We need help with how to be, how to be kind and good and godly, right? Because we're so evil. But you won't find books on how to be evil because we can take care of that. We are very creative with evil. Right? Think about that. That's God just reminding you and me that something happened horribly at the first birth. And because of that, you and I need to be born again. But also, it, uh, the word means literally, in the Greek, it means from above, right? It literally means from above. And so uh, the whole concept there, the nuance is talking source, that, that the source isn't, isn't you, but that the source of rebirth has to be from God. And then finally, uh, kind of the cousin of from above is from the same source that birthed you the first time, the whole re is saying that it has to come from the one who actually gave you birth this first time, which is just reminding you and me that God birthed you, not just your mom and dad. And so look at the verse here. It seems in verse 4, Nicodemus is thoroughly confused at this point because Jesus dropped this bomb on him. You see, he says, Nicodemus said to him in verse 4, family, look, he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? See, Nicodemus at this point is either rhetoric that's trying to play with Jesus or he is thoroughly confused, right? He's like, what in the world is going on here, Jesus? What are you talking about? And Jesus responds in verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you again, for real, right? I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's saying, Nicodemus, I'm talking about a spiritual rebirth, not a physical rebirth. And he's going to prove that in different frameworks throughout the text all the way through uh, verse 15. We won't be able to hit all of it, uh, but I want to encourage you to look at it and meditate on it. I want to hit a few things. The first thing I want to hit right here is understanding this whole concept of baptism. Now, not a lot of people uh, look at the word water here and they're thinking uh, kind of baptism, Okay. Whereas I want to be really clear here, baptism never saved anybody, okay? All right? The only problem when you think in baptism saves you is you go down a dry center, you come up a wet center, right? Never saved anybody. That's not what, and, and, and the Lord talks about this in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, uh, I can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. I think I put it up here. Uh, it's a huge problem to think that it saves you. Look what, look what Paul says in the scriptures. It's very interesting that Paul would say this. As he's proclaiming the gospel to the people of God in Corinth, uh, he wants to make things more clear. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. It's interesting that baptism has such a prominent, now, now, now trust me here, I'm going to talk about the grace of baptism, but it's not salvific. He makes a distinction between baptizing and preaching the gospel. And he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. whole point is just trying to give you a snapshot uh, from a quick uh, proof text in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, that bapti- baptism is not a salvific function. So what's happening here? 
Uh, let me explain it to you practically, and then I'll hit you theologically with what's going on. Practically, uh, baptism reminds me of my ring, right? My ring serves uh, two, two, two vital functions, um, as I'm going to have the honor of marrying these two pretty soon. Uh, the whole point of the ring is to do a couple things. First thing it does is it reminds people um, outside who are looking at me that I'm not available, okay? That's what it does. <laughs> right, baby girl? Right, and so... So, right, and so that's what, what all the guys in the room, when we're going to the, the, you know, the workouts or whatever, and we're hanging out, and someone ha- comes over, and they're nice to you, and then they see the ring, that means that's deterrent, right? Get away from me if you're coming at me like that, because I'm already taken. That's 100, okay? That's real talk. But guess what else the ring? There's another vital function. It is also there to remind you you're not available. You understand? You understand? All right? That's practical. Theological. Um, in, in antiquity, uh, specifically in antiquity, not just the first century, but in antiquity as a whole, uh, it's very interesting that baptism uh, had a really powerful meaning, especially considering that this is, is an area where it's desert, right? So, so water really meant something. Right? Not, they didn't, it was water near grass in Egypt, you know what I'm saying? And so uh, it's a very, very serious deal in, that, in, that, in, in, in uh, near ancient East, East Asia. So... Uh, so naturally, these, 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 these figures are significant in the mind of people. And frequently, guys, in the scriptures, water is symbolical of God's blessing. Two things, God's blessing, if you're taking notes, and also spiritual refreshment, right? And so when you read the psalm, you're reading these, uh, these, these psalms and things of that sort, that's what you're sensing. When you're hearing water, that terminology is to, is to embark in your word picture of like great refreshment. Oh, and also how God blesses his people, okay, in general. And so... The idea of cleansing comes in when you think of refreshment. That's what right? It's a sense of cleansing, of refreshment, of blessing. And so even when you think of the upper room, when he's, when it, when it, when he's washing the disciples' feet, and then he says, hey, you're already clean, but you're going to be cleaning each other, as it were. You're going to continually be washing each other's feet, as it were, washing each other in the water. What is this point? It's not that you're going to get, you're going to get saved every time, you know, Tammy washes, you know, uh, you know, Edie's feet. No, that's not the point, right? The whole point is that there's something that happens with the people of God where God saves us and boom, there is a, a, a salvific, an ontological cleansing that we are clean from Jesus, but at the same time, because we're not in a new creation yet, we still, as it were, get dirty in our cleanliness. And so he says what's going to happen is the people of God, the whole point of that passage is the people of God are going to continue to wash each other and care for each other, and we're going to re- refresh each other. And so we're going we're gonna to ask for forgiveness, and you're going to ask for forgiveness, and that's going to continue to cleanse us so that that cleansing that we experience ontologically like in our personhood, we experience even practically as a community. The whole point in saying that, family, is water is to embark on you this picture of cleaning and refreshment. And so that's what's happening here. Um, in a ceremonial system, as we've gone through countless times in this body, so everybody should be like, like absolutely uh, superstars in the ceremonial system, I'm hoping, uh, washing was a prominent feature, amen? Priests were washed at their consecrations. Levites were washed in their consecrations. The Day of Atonement had huge washings. In fact, we had a replica up here that showed you you could not even begin your journey in worshiping Yahweh without getting to that water and washing yourself, Okay? So clearly he's talking about cleansing, and what he's doing is he's putting it in Old Testament phraseology so that we get it. And so what Nicodemus is doing here is nothing more than an apposition family, and I'm spending time on this because it's highly theological, but I just want you to be able to explain this and also digest it in your own heart so when you see this passage, you don't just walk by this, little, this, this verse here, but that you embrace it and realize that God is saying something really awesome to us. 
And he's telling Nicodemus, being a Pharisee, that this water he's talking about, that you need to have a, uh, to be born again, is a spiritual rebirth, and it happens through a spiritual cleansing from God, is his point. You see this, and I write some addresses down, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. You can look at that as well. Key point is there's no difference in being born anew and being born of the water and of the spirit. There are appositions. His point is that that is what God is asking of you and me. Um, and guess what? It's a spiritual order, and it has to do with the spiritual rebirth. And that's what he's saying here in verse 6. Remember I told you that before? Spiritual rebirth. He explains it through water in verse 5. He explains it through species in verse 6. Look at verse 6, family. See what he says here? He said, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Right? His point there is simple, right? His point is that, guess what? A dolphin does not have a cow. Right? Giraffes don't have, you know, centipedes. Right? Why? Why is that the case? Because they're of different type, family. They're of different species. And what, what, what Jesus is doing, graciously, is he's saying to, uh, to Nicodemus, that guess what? Man can't produce spirit. Man can produce man. Spirit has to produce spirit. You see that? And so he's saying the, 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 the rebirth has to come from spirit because spirit gave you birth the first time. And so that's why when we were out sharing our faith, the beauty of this is we deeply in our hearts, I hope we're girded by God's thinking that when we proclaim the gospel, we do all that we can do, as my wife was praying earlier this morning about we cultivating what God is doing in the world when we're downstairs praying. It's a beautiful prayer because that's what happens, right? We're, 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 get, we're trying to give doctrine, we're preaching the gospel, we're caring for people, but at the end of the day, guess what has to happen? Spirit has to birth spirit. It's a very freeing thing when we really digest that. It's a very freeing thing for our, our posture of evangelism family. So that's what he's saying here. So he goes on, and I'm almost done. I promise. I know you think I'm in the halfway mark, but I'm not. I'm almost done. Um, and that's his point there. He's saying, man, it's a beautiful thing. Nicodemus, verse 7, do not marvel that I said, oh, that I said to you, you must be born again. He's like, Nicodemus looking like, what? You can imagine? Because you know Jesus breaking it down. Boom, boom, Nicodemus staring. He's like, why are you staring, bro? But you know why he's saying that to him? He's holding him accountable, right? You know why? Because he's like, dude, you're a Pharisee. You've memorized all these books. You know, you're looking at me sideways. I'm giving you doctrine 101. So he's kind of holding him accountable. He goes on. He says, do not marvel that I said this to you. You must be born again. Then he says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He goes on. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? See what I'm saying? Calls them out. Truly, truly, for real, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So he's cutting him to the quick right now. He's just letting him know, hey, I want you to humble yourself. I've been preaching the gospel the whole time. You have not been listening, okay? And I was, and I was being chill. Now I'm telling you some deep stuff. You, you ready for this? And look what he goes on. Look what he says here. It goes to one of my favorite passages of the Bible, actually. Uh, verse uh, 13, he says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
And then he goes and he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, you hear that family? So must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What does he do? He goes down. Let me find a verse for you so you can write down this address. It's in Exodus 21, I believe verse 8 and 9, which leads me to my final point. It is a supernatural thing to enter into the kingdom of God. And only through faith in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ do we enter into the kingdom of God and are we part of God's family. Only through Jesus Christ can a man enter through faith in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. You see what he said in verse 15? He goes back to Exodus 21, verse 8 and 9. Guess what happened during that time? The people of God had disobeyed. God, people were being sick. They were dying. And God does something so interesting. He says, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put this snake, this, this bronze snake on a pole, and people who look at it are going to be saved. And people who don't are going to die. Right? And, and what's amazing to me is the thing about when we were reading that way back then, because we read that passage, I'm just blown away at God's grace that he knew how many years later, almost a thousand years later, that verse was so we could speak of Christ. Perhaps one of the main reasons God allowed that to enter into history was so Jesus could say that. So Jesus can make it really clear so that now we can read this in 2017 and go, oh, that's why Jesus did. That's why God did that. Right. And think about that. It's amazing that God will use that historical, not only word picture, but clear foreshadowing, clear historical event. Because it's interesting. Guess what? Many people can look at a pole. Right. Right. People like right. You can be good. Good people can look at the pole. Bad people can look at the pole. Right. You can. It didn't matter what kind of class you were, how much money you had. Anyone can just go. I'm going to trust that what he said matters. Right. Anybody can do that. But guess what? Anybody cannot look at the pole. There was mean people in the wilderness who didn't look at the pole and died. There was probably nice people in the wilderness who didn't look at the pole and died. There was probably wealthy people. There were probably poor people. It's very interesting. He would use this word picture and use this historical event to show us the beauty and the the beautiful opportunity for anyone who desires to drink from the well of Jesus. They have an opportunity, but at the same time, it must come through him. And if it does not, you will perish. And so just as the the snake was lifting up in the wilderness, Jesus says, just as that was happening, the Son of Man is lifted up, is that if you and I don't put our faith, our confidence, our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone for our salvations, he says, you and I will miss life. And I tell you something, family, as as a pastor, for all the things for people not to get, it might be second nature to some of us in here whom God has given you that grace, but one of the main things that people struggle with is that there's nothing they can do to bring salvation to themselves. I talk to people all the time, and they, they think, well, yes, Jesus, but this. Yes, Jesus, but that. Yes, Jesus, but I'm doing good. And, and all these things, and we think there's something else that we bring to the table to actually experience life in Christ. And there's nothing we bring to the table. And I think of my concept when I, you know, roaches. I just think of roaches. I didn't, you know, because I, I, I don't know, I just, I hate roaches, right? And how many of you guys have ever gone into a room and seen a roach and thought, you know what? Here, it's two, three roaches. That's a good roach. So I'm going to kill that roach. How many of you guys have ever been selective about the roach you killed? 
probably not. See, that's my analogy because I grew up in the hood and I had, I had, we had roaches growing up. Okay, and I think about that and I go, you know what? When I see roaches, I'm an equal opportunity killer. I just start stepping on cats. You know what I'm saying? I want to kill them all. I'm not worried. About, I'm not thinking about their resume and their pedigree. I want to get rid of them because they're nasty and filthy. And I propose to you in the same way when God looks at sinful people who have, who, who have, who have become enemies because of their own audacity to think they can be their own God, he just says, I need to destroy you. But he was merciful. In the midst of that, in the midst of that despicable reality, he still sent his son, Jesus Christ, for you and I to have a way to life. That's, that's why we're here. That's why Jesus did not just turn his back on Nicodemus, but he said, Nicodemus, although y'all been talking about me, although y'all really don't like me, I can see there's something missing out of your life, and I want to be gracious to you and tell you, you can have life. It's only in my name. Now, what does it mean to, this whole concept he gives here, you know, to be born again? What does it mean to give life? And, I, and we'll, we'll, we'll close in this. There is a difference than uh, believing in and believing that. Do you know that? See, one is, is knowing facts, right? You can believe that Jesus is the Son of God and still be dead as a doorknob. You understand? Right? Because God is never asking anyone in this room, and hear me, he's not asking any of you to assert the fact of Christ. He doesn't need you to affirm that he's reality. That's not, his, that's not, why, that's not why we're on mission. That's not, that's not his role. He doesn't care about that. He knows he's God. He knows he's awesome. So, so, so interest into the kingdom is never about asserting facts. And I hope my boys hear that. I hope all the young people hear that. It's never about being able to go, oh, yeah, Jesus Christ died on the cross. Oh, yeah, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Oh, yeah, Jesus Christ saves people from their sin. You can still know all that and not be a Christian because that doesn't save you. Knowing facts hasn't saved anyone. That's why the Bible talks about putting your faith in the person, Right? Not even having faith in faith. That's not what saves you. Your faith doesn't save you. Your faith in Jesus, the historical person who's the man God, who rose from the dead, who lived a life perfect for you and me, knowing that Jesus, I put my trust, my confidence. When I stand before God, when I stand before the Lord, I will not talk about the church that we planted. I won't talk about the disciples that I've led to Jesus, all the the, the books. I won't talk about any of that stuff. I will stand before a holy and perfect God, and I will bow my hand, and I will say, Lord, I have absolutely nothing to offer you. But if you would look to your right hand and talk to your son Jesus, he will tell you that I've given my total life to him. Jesus, please tell the Father that I've given my life to you. My only hope for salvation will be that Jesus will speak for me, that he will say in my stead that that is my son. That's my only hope. That's my only hope. That's your only hope. That's why this is in the Bible. Pray with me, please. Lord, would you be gracious to us and allow us to discern the trickery of Satan to not be religious? Lord, would you give us the grace to not just worry about our social prominence? Would you give us the grace to not worry about being and understanding what's going on in our culture and being political? Lord, give us a passion for Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus. And right now, as we heads are bowed, I pray if there's anyone in this room right now who's not for certain, by God's grace, 
that if they were to die and something was to happen to them, that they would be with the Lord, that they, they would be able to fully trust that Christ is their king. You can make that right, right now. Right now, you have to jump through hoops. I love the gospel because the gospel is about us humbling ourselves before a holy, good Lord and saying, I'm not God, you are. And would you graciously forgive me for trying to be that which you are? We confess our sins. If you're wondering right now, how do I have, how do I experience kingdom entrance? The Lord makes it really clear. We, we agree with God that we're sinners. We repent of our sin. We ask God Lord, to save us, to be our king. And the Lord says what he does as we confess that he's the Lord, as we confess that he has paid the penalty for our sin, as we confess that he is the true living God and we want him to be our God. Jesus says what he does supernaturally is he, he saves us. And that the work he's beginning in you through that salvation, he will continue to mature and complete until the day of redemption, the Bible says. If anyone right now, if you in your heart say, Lord, I want that to be me. Pray and ask God to do that in your heart right now. It's God to save you. Be exalted, Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.